0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, I'll be talking with a firefighter who's part of a new group organizing to fight something else besides fires The fight is to protect the rights and freedoms of first responders and frontline workers when it comes to unreasonable or unscientific mandates, to prevent what happened during COVID from happening again, and also to try to right some of those wrongs. As we speak, we are less than three weeks away from the launch of an exciting eighth season of my TV program, Full Measure. I've been researching and beginning to shoot stories all summer. In fact, I'm heading to the southern border next week for a reality check on what's really happening there. As usual, you will get the facts without the spin. Also, as we speak, a lot of revisionist history seems to be underway. Dr. Fauci has announced he's leaving his government job at the end of the year. The CDC has acknowledged some of their terrible errors during COVID, though the head of CDC says she's staying in place. And today for this podcast, I'm speaking with Jason Collins, a leader of a brand new group just being announced this week. He's Vice President of Administration for the National Coalition of Frontline Workers. And I think this is exemplary of a phenomenon that I'm writing about for my next book. Let me explain. My other books, Stonewalled, The Smear, and Slanted, forecast the outrageous control and manipulation of the news, media, and information in general online and elsewhere. In those books, and for a long time, I gave the propagandists the upper hand. Even though they may represent a minority, even a fringe, since they're funded by powerful political and corporate interests— They can give the appearance of widespread support, and they can drown out or even censor the rest of the public, whether it's on social media or the news or elsewhere. But, and this is where my new book will go, in the end, I think true grassroots beats out the astroturf and the organized propagandists every time. It just takes a little longer. It's taken years for large groups of people, Democrats, Republicans, nonpartisans, to start to rise up in the face of the audacious censorship and social trends promoted at the behest of paid interests. But they are organizing and rising up. It takes them longer because they're reacting, these real people. They don't have a pre-designated infrastructure. They don't have giant PR firms, global law firms, well-funded nonprofits, and a conflicted media doing their bidding and getting their word out. It takes them longer because they don't have the giant foundations spending millions and billions pulling strings, funding their movements. But ultimately, these real movements and real people are more powerful because unlike so much of the propagandists, they are greater in number and they are real and not manufactured and packaged to simply look like a formidable force. In any event, here's Jason Collins to talk about his group's new efforts.
1: I'm a firefighter uh, in Washington, D.C., and I have uh, been employed by the fire department for uh, roughly 23 years, um, 18 of which has been in Washington, D.C. And over the last few years, two years, three years, um, you know, uh, with the COVID-19 stuff and the mandates, et cetera, of uh, government feeling as though they can tell us what we can do when we have to do it, um, when that's not necessarily the case, uh, brought us together from across the country. Uh, We met um, at the Defeat the Mandates in Washington, D.C., um, and we realized that we weren't alone. Uh, Many people across the country, frontline workers uh, across the country, felt isolated and as though they were alone. And that event uh, in D.C., the Defeat the Mandates event, um, really put a bright light on the fact that we weren't alone. And there was many, many, many frontline workers across the country um, that felt the same way that, that we all did. Um, and then we didn't have a voice and that we were uh, politically silenced. Um, and we hadn't had a voice for a long time. So uh, we, we started talking and, and decided to Uh, created an organization to take an action plan um, to give a voice to frontline workers across the country, including firefighters, law enforcement officers, healthcare workers, nurses, et cetera, et cetera.
0: What's the name of the group that you all formed?
1: Uh, The National Coalition of Frontline Workers.
0: And do you have any idea how many people that represents? I don't know if people have to say, hey, you represent me or you're just sort of an overarching group that represents anybody who wants to feel like they fall under that
1: umbrella. Sure. So currently there's roughly 23 million, uh, firefighters, police officers, and healthcare workers in the United States. Um, we're, we're an umbrella over, uh, the entire group. There's no demographic that, ex- that is excluded from our organization because we feel as though, um, everybody across the United States should have uh, an equal voice, uh, when it comes to issues that matter to them most.
0: And how are you getting your money or funding?
1: Sure. So, uh, we, we are a membership-based organization um, through a 501c5, uh, and we also have established a 501c3, which is the National Coalition of Frontline Workers Foundation, um, to do uh, b- benevolent issues for our members, etc. So, through donations and membership.
0: And how many members do you have paying members
1: Sure. So currently, um, our launch is on Thursday. So currently, we have members in 35 states across the United States. Uh, our projection for the first year is to have 25,000 members uh, within the first 12 calendar months.
0: Okay, so we're here. I didn't know if the group is officially started or not. I think you have a website. Tell us we do. what happens this week.
1: Sure. So, one of the things that uh, we've been silenced on as frontline workers is you know uh, any call to action. Um, in my years of on the fire department, um I've never been asked one time um, from any other organization um, what political candidate I would like to endorse, uh, what um, House bills, Senate bills I would like to support, et cetera, et cetera. So it was important for us to as a launch, to come together and with a national call to action. Uh, And that call to action will be done at a press conference uh, this Thursday um, that will call on the Congress and the president to end the public health emergency uh, that is stemming from the COVID-19 issue over the last two years.
0: Does it say that in general, you support certain bills that are currently pending or this will be something you'll be monitoring as the group goes forward?
1: This is something that we'll be monitoring, and this is the, really the great thing about the organization, because anything that has to do with, uh, with the frontline workers in the United States, um, you know, we'll monitor that, uh, we'll inform the membership on it, and we'll send it out for a referendum vote where everybody will have uh, an equal vote on what they would like to support and what they would like to back, which is a completely different way of doing business of, of other organizations that, uh, that are designed to, to represent frontline workers in the United States.
0: Now, as we dig into some editorial matters involving the group, can you tell me a little bit about what happened with you? Did the fire department require or the city somehow require um, fire officials like you to get the vaccine? And did you do so? Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Sure. So uh, in Washington, D.C., vaccines were mandated. um, And through that process, uh, there was, um, you know, scare tactic after scare tactic to try to get people to comply um, I, I was not supportive of the mandate, um, so I fought it from the very beginning. I approached um, uh, our, organiz- our labor organization um, to help us support through that. And we, we were not only not supported through that process, but we were also um, acted almost adversarially um, against. So it, it, was, it was a difficult time for us. Um, I was able to uh, secure a, a religious accommodation um, through the laws that are provided, uh, and was successfully able to uh, help um, hundreds of other members uh, secure that same protection under the law to not be forced to be vaccinated.
0: And what is your religious objection?
1: Uh, well, it's 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 a couple things. Uh, first is that I do not believe that uh, aborted fetal cells should be um, used and, and monetized as an industry. Um Secondly, is that I feel as though the, this vaccine is somewhat of a false idol, uh, that people are worshiping uh, this thing as it's the end all tell all. And there's no other options for uh, people to rely on their conscience for what's best for their body based on their religious beliefs. So uh, those two are the, the, the main two factors that um, drew me to the conclusion that uh, that I was not going to become vaccinated.
0: Here's what strikes me as so strange and unscientific. Religious accommodations are supposed to be allowed under the law. Sometimes they weren't. And there are cases now being fought over that. But religious accommodations must be offered, but not medical accommodations. And there are people who have proven medical reasons they cannot get the vaccine or should not get the vaccine, according to their doctors and according to the known side effects, with more still coming out. And yet those are typically not allowed by anybody. What sense does that make? I know that you as a frontline professional it seems like your group more than anybody understands health and the body and responding to medical emergencies what are your thoughts about the notion that there were no medical accommodations allowed during this time
1: sure medical accommodations were absolutely um you know the the hardest thing to get awarded uh, or granted per se but You know, there's frontline workers, you know, in our group um, all across the country from New York to California that are still uh, out of work uh, because of the inability to grant um, a a medical exemption. And that comes uh, with documentation from medical doctors that that says that these members cannot receive it based on ingredients, based on side effects, based on past medical history. Uh, But yet they're still. Um, out of work and, and forced to be out of work for the foreseeable future. And we don't know how it's going to turn out. And that's one of the things that the National Coalition of Frontline Workers uh, will do is to to step into those arenas and, and fight for those workers to make sure that um, their their protections are offered under the law and and, and take whatever actions necessary to make sure that, that we don't give up those rights as, as Americans.
0: In Washington, D.C., as it's come to be widely known, I think, Many people knew this initially, but now CDC has acknowledged the vaccines are pretty ineffective and don't stop the spread. Are they still requiring you all to get boosters and to continue to do things uh, regarding the COVID vaccine?
1: Sure. In Washington, D.C., um, they have held the uh, booster mandate in abeyance, Um, and that was on the heels of our fight uh, with the city to recognize uh, religious and medical exemptions. But there's other places throughout the the country that that are much more um, entrenched in this than Washington, D.C., such as New York City. Um, There's firefighters in New York City that have been out of work since November um, and they can't get an answer. They've they've applied for a religious exemption. They've applied for medical exemptions, et cetera. uh, And the city just will not take action on them. And that's why I think that it's important for uh, firefighters, law enforcement officers, healthcare workers to be able to have a political voice because, you know, whether we want to uh, acknowledge the fact or not that this is a, a political thing. Um, so we need to be able to have these these voices in these political arenas to, to make the changes that are best going to suit our frontline workers, to keep us healthy, um, to keep us available to work, and to keep us protecting the public.
0: Were you surprised when you learned, in your view, that the labor unions were not taking up for what the workers or what many of the workers wanted? And what do you... Think about why that is.
1: Um, you know, I, I was very surprised uh, and maybe I shouldn't have been. Um, you know, it was something that, that I had firsthand knowledge with and, and experience with in D.C. Um, as we tried to navigate through our process. Um, you know, I think that uh, the, the, the larger organization over the, the smaller locals is calling the shots and that's done with with money and pressure. Um, but that's one of the things that, that we pay dues to uh, an organization, and we do not get a voice in that. Um, so we just kind of have to sit back and take it um, and, and, and go with it. And we were successfully able to fight that. Um, but that was definitely from no help from, from our current local uh, union.
0: Did you work out in your own mind uh, theories about why the national labor folks would not be responsive to the members?
1: I think everything goes back to money. Um everything goes back to to money and perceived political power. We currently um, as a a local um, labor union, you know, answer to the international, uh, and then the international obviously answers to um, their large donors, et cetera. So I think that that it all comes back to to money and, and historically speaking, um, you know uh, uh, the labor organization that I'm a part of um, has been. A, a, a pretty left organization. And and that appears to be the common denominator for uh, the, the supportive measures in all of this.
0: And not to beat a dead horse, but why would a labor organization that leans left not want its workers, those who feel they need accommodations or need to be representative, representative why wouldn't they? What is the money tie? Is somebody paying them to... And who would it be to not be responsive to that side of
1: things? Sure. I mean, that's the million dollar question. That's, that's the question that, uh, that, that everybody wants to know. Um, and it is, you know, currently um, held behind a veil. So, you know, it's difficult to, to pinpoint um, what the connection is other than um, uh, political powers and, and money. And, and to be specific about that, um, you know, I can't speak to that specifically um, because I just don't know because it is such a, a, a veil process and a veil uh, you know machine
0: That's not just the sound of that first sip of morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the
1: morning right.
0: That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle, find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Can you take me back to when all this was first happening and nobody knew where it was headed? And I think a lot of people initially thought, um, I'll give shutdown, the lockdowns a chance, I'll give the vaccine a chance. Were you someone who initially were dubious about the vaccine, or did you think maybe, and then you heard things about it you didn't like? Just take me back to your own personal experience when this was first coming out and your thought processes.
1: Sure. So when when COVID nineteen was first a, a thing, um, you know, I was initially worried. You know, I, I have a family with small ch- children, and uh, the last thing that I want to do is, is is bring something home that's going to to harm them. Um, so we entered into the the lockdowns, um, and we were running calls. Our, our emergency calls dropped during that period um, because people just weren't going to the hospital. Um, you know, in fact, there there was many times where we ran people that were positive with COVID and. A nurse that we would call on the telephone would just tell them to stay at home until they couldn't breathe um, and then go to the hospital. So early treatment was out. But I wasn't seeing uh, the death and destruction on the streets um, that I was hearing about on on mainstream media. So for me, it was a a point for pause uh, to sit back and really kind of dive into it and and look into it. And and what I was seeing with my own eyes uh, was not matching what I was being told was happening. Um, so that was the, that was the first step when this first came about, you know, I would get off from work in the morning, um, and take my clothes off at the firehouse. I would jump in the shower. I would bag them up. I would come home. I would leave them outside for a day or two. I would go inside. I would take another shower. Um, and, and that lasted for, for just a short period in, until I realized that, that, that what I was actually seeing with my own eyes did not match what, uh, what I was being told was happening.
0: And when you compared notes or talked with your friends at work and colleagues, I assume maybe I'm wrong. There was a range of opinions. Were there people that were anxious and really wanted to have whatever the government said was the best protection and felt good about that? And others who did not like what was the discussion and what was the breakdown? Would you say most people you work with were like you or just a wide range of differences?
1: I think the majority w- was was like me um, initially. Um, I think the people that uh, that, that supported, um, you know, getting the vaccination um, did so from a, a position of being trained, essentially, through their entire life that that the vaccinations were were um, the best protection for everything, um, and discounting the effectiveness of early treatment and discounting the effectiveness of natural immunity.
0: Do you have any medical training as a firefighter? Do they give you some basic, you know, first aid or something beyond that?
1: I, I do. As, as, along with being a firefighter, I am a, an emergency medical technician. So what are some of your thoughts about
0: how we handled this? And, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. 20 But if we could go back to those early days, knowing what we know now, what are some of your thoughts about what you think, could have or should have happened in terms of public policy and the job place and things like that?
1: Sure. I think that, um, you know, obviously everything should be done on a case by case basis, but, um, early treatment is, is, has proven, um, itself time and time again, to be effective for COVID-19 from de- to developing into something more severe. Um, I think that, you know, as a as a system, we allowed people to stay at home too long um, for those people that were at risk for severe disease. Um, but early treatment, by far, is, is the most effective treatment uh, for uh, COVID nineteen in its entirety.
0: And are you concerned now about potentially being targeted by anybody as somebody who's organizing in the way you are? I realize now there's there are a lot. A lot of people like you out there, so maybe it's not as scary to speak out as it once was, but there are cases where, for example, doctors who prescribed medicines such as ivermectin, which is completely legal to do uh, for early treatment on the basis of many studies that show uh, improvement in possible you know, help for COVID with ivermectin, they were targeted by various groups and agencies. Some, sometimes their medical licenses have been pulled. They've been threatened. Have you Have you thought about this and been concerned about your name being out there?
1: Uh, you know, as an organization, the National Coalition of Frontline Workers, you know, we have thought about this um, and, and, and we are strong and we're prepared to weather that storm because uh, we all have a, a common belief that, that it's not just for us. Um, it's this fight is for um, us, but it's for the our next generation and the following generation, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, we're prepared to to weather that storm, um, and 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 not saying anything uh, would be absolutely uh, off the table for for me personally um, and for the 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 board of the National Coalition of Frontline Workers collectively.
0: And then a couple more questions about what happened with COVID. Do you know anybody who? died supposedly of COVID or died supposedly of the vaccine?
1: Um, so, you know, I, I don't know anybody personally that, uh, that, that, that died from COVID. Um, you know, I, there's a lot of talks about people that, that may have, I think more importantly, uh, you know, the, 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 success stories in, in this is, is what the, the light should be shined on. I have a coworker that has been recently retired, Um, was developed COVID-19 or contracted COVID-19 and he did not seek early treatment. He stayed at home for for many, many days um, until the point he was very, very sick. I went to see him and and I told him that, you know, you need to go to the hospital. Uh, So he went to the hospital. And during that time, the doctors uh, immediately wanted to put him on a ventilator um, and give him medications such as remdesivir, uh, which he absolutely denied. Um, he was going to get up and walk out because he did not agree with their treatment plan. Um, so they went to the magistrate and got a 24-hour psych hold on him to keep him against his will. Wow. And during that time, um, I was I was letting him know of the uh, treatment protocols that were, were given by uh, phenomenal doctors such as Peter McCullough and, and Pierre Corey, et cetera. Um, and he was relaying that information to the doctors at the hospital, of which they were not. Um, on board with, with doing, but they did treat him with the minimal amount of of stuff. Um, and four or five days later, um, he walked out of the hospital. Uh, even up to the last day that he was in the hospital, they were still trying to convince him to go on to a ventilator. Uh, and he said that he was feeling better, and he just wanted an X-ray of his lungs to make sure the infection was gone, which they complied. Uh, and they showed him the X-ray, and he saw that the infection had been removed from his lungs through the treatment that he was suggesting to them. And he said that he was going to walk out and he's, he's totally recovered today with no long term uh, effects from it. So I think that, you know, more so of, of speculating on who died with COVID or who died from COVID, I think it's important to, to really put a lot of value in the, the fact that the treatments are available for people and that, you know, people do get better uh, if they happen to contract, you know, severe virus.
0: It almost sounds like some crazy despotic country where people who make rational decisions for themselves or ask questions are treated like they're, you know, psych patients. It's just it's a frightening development.
1: It's it's very scary. It's very scary from the standpoint that you can go to the hospital where you expect to receive treatment and get help, um, just to be a, a prisoner of war, essentially. Um, you know, and luckily this gentleman uh, was, was, was very in tune with, with what he believed in, did and, and he had done his own research prior. Um, and so he, he was prepared for that fight, but so many Americans were not prepared for that fight. And so many Americans, uh, you know, did comply with, with the request to, uh, be put on a ventilator. You know, there's, there's so many stories to, to talk about I and mean, we probably don't have time for them today, but, you know, uh uh, firsthand experience I have of, of another coworker that's, uh, their sister, uh, went to the hospital, um, uh, with, uh, with, with COVID-19 and, and she was texting with, uh, my coworker and, and said that, Oh, Hey, they want me to go on a ventilator. Um, so I'll text you in a couple of days when I, when I get better. Uh, and she never texted them again. So I think that, I think that the, the willingness for people to comply with, uh, with the, the medical suggestions, Um, may have been a bigger factor in uh, the overall deaths of Americans as opposed to directly being related to COVID-19.
0: I think there's some evidence for that. And I'm not recommending or advising anything, but I do know people who said their number one goal came to be not going to the hospital as sick as they may have felt because they worried that they'd be forced into some treatment that wasn't good. They'd be isolated from their loved ones. So, that's sort of the lack of confidence that was created in our system by the actions of some. And then the second part of my question earlier, do you know anybody who was supposedly injured or died because of the COVID vaccine?
1: Sure, so that's one of the things that uh, the National Coalition of Frontline Workers has recognized is that um, firefighters, police officers, and and healthcare workers across the country um, have been injured from the vaccine, uh, otherwise healthy healthy men and women uh, across the country have developed uh, myocarditis, um, have developed other um, cardiac and pulmonary issues, um, have developed neurological issues. Uh, and so, we're moving through, um, as we launch the organization, we're moving through uh, developing a database to collect and track that information for uh, frontline workers that are vaccine injured um, and being able to give them the the treatment that they need from doctors that are compassionate and and care about their well-being
0: well those doctors are in many instances as i said under attack but maybe those attacks will ease as they organize better and as cdc comes around to acknowledging what many already knew about their own misinformation and disinformation that was put forth Um, so i'm glad you're doing what you're doing if people want to find out more where should they go?
1: Sure. They can visit our website at frontlineworkers.org. And on the website, you will have the option to, uh, to join as a member. Um, if you are a, a firefighter or law enforcement officer, or healthcare worker, um, uh, but it also gave you the option to donate if you support the cause. Um, so, you know, we, we are a nonprofit organization. So, um, anything that, that we can, um, muster up as far as financial support is, is greatly, uh Appreciated, and, and we look forward to to doing great things in the future.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and if so, you'll leave a good review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. Check out my other podcast, the Cheryl Atkinson Podcast, and remember, my new season of Full Measure starts Sunday, September eleventh. For a station list, you can go to com. And click the Full Measure tab. You will see a list of stations and times and other ways to watch online and on our app called STIRR, S-T-I-R-R, which is free. Also, you can support independent journalism causes by visiting CherylAxon.com and clicking the Store tab. There are some great thought-provoking and fun products designed exclusively for independent and free thinkers with proceeds benefiting independent reporting causes. Do your own research make up your own mind, think for yourself.